The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her, and in the same way the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus said, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are the children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living, for to him all are alive. The Gospel of the Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord my God and my Redeemer. Amen. So a few years back, the essayist Rebecca Solnit wrote an essay entitled, Men Explain Things to Me. This essay was so wildly popular, I'm not sure if she uses the term in it or not, but it, it launched the term, say it with me, mansplaining. And while we're here, I'll just go ahead and say, I'm sorry. I know. I'm working on it. You can talk to my wife. But at the beginning of her essay, she tells this really amazing, awkward, hilarious story about attending with a friend this dinner party with a bunch of rich people in Aspen at the home of a, quote, imposing man who'd made a lot of money. The host, as she tells it, begins to ask her about her work as an author. But, again, as she sees it in a noticeably condescending way. And so she begins to tell him about her latest work on Edward Muybridge, at which point he interrupts her to ask her if she's read the latest book on Muybridge that had just come out. And he goes on and on and on about this great book that he's been reading and blah, blah, blah. And it turns out uh, he hadn't actually read the book, and he was so self-assured in talking about a book that he'd never read that he couldn't hear Rebecca's friend until the fourth time of her saying, that's her book. (laughs) Then it finally sunk in, and she said he turned ashen, so at least he knew enough to be embarrassed. In our gospel text this evening, Luke records Jesus engaging in several challenges. If we were to read the larger section in chapter 20, we would see arranged almost back to back, there's different groups that come in and challenge Jesus' authority, usually through a trick question. It's set up almost like the scene of a really great play, right? Our hero has finally gotten to town, things are about ready to really get cooking, and then there's these groups of enemies that keep coming in sort of in chorus, trying to undermine him. 
The particular trick question before us is brought by the Sadducees. This is a group that we don't hear much about in the gospel accounts. Sadducees were sort of like wealthy, almost aristocratic fundamentalists. They were very conservative. They denied the oral tradition that the Pharisees held to. They only held the, the authoritative scripture for them was only the book of the law, the book of Moses, the first five books of Hebrew scripture and our scriptures, the Pentateuch. Those, that's all that they held to. And because of that, they, they were pitted against the Pharisees. They were sort of a rival faction in Jewish religious life. So along with the denial of later books of scripture and the oral tradition, they also denied the existence of angels and the existence of the resurrection or the afterlife in general, which is pretty great for them because they all had really comfortable, rich, wealthy lives. So they didn't really need to worry about living a great life later. They had a great life now. If we notice the contours of their questions, I think we're going to start to see what they're really up to because it's kind of a weird question, isn't it? Their question revolves around the practice of what's called leveret marriage. So in ancient times, wealth and power were handed down generationally to male heirs, often in the form of land. So as families would grow and over time, they would start to amass more wealth and more land, and it was always handed down the, the biggest portion to the eldest son. And then the other sons were given, divided up what was left, right? So if the eldest son died, without a male heir, this could start to create problems, right? Because that larger portion of land is gonna to go to his eldest son. You guys see? Yeah, all right, I haven't slept for a while, so if this is not clear, feel free to stop me and I'll try to explain it again. So the solution then was to have the widow of the, of the eldest son who, who, who would have died in this situation marry the next brother in line. I realize it sounds weird, Yes, it sort of is assuming that women are kind of like property. I'm sorry. That's just the way that things were. So their, their scenario here it has this in mind. The key idea for leveret marriage, though, is that the, the, the heir that might be produced by the next brother would not legally be his child. It would be his older dead brother's child. And that son would then get all of that inheritance and wealth and land. Okay? It was a way of passing on the family line rather than having it die out, which is another way of saying it's a way of living beyond the grave. Right? So the Sadducees are saying, let's say a guy gets married and dies. The next brother in line marries his widow, just like Moses wrote for us, they say. That's important. And then that son dies, and so on and so on through seven brothers. Essentially what they're saying is resurrection makes no sense and the books of Moses don't teach it. Do you see the trap? Jesus can either say that he is in agreement with Moses and Scripture and agree that resurrection is nonsense, something that if you've studied the rest of his life and ministry, you know he doesn't believe. Or he can say that Moses and Scripture don't really matter, that they're not really binding, they're not really authoritative over him, and that the resurrection is therefore real. Of course, what the Sadducees don't realize is that they are the ones who have walked into the trap. And they're sort of like that smug host trying to explain a book that he hasn't actually read to the woman who wrote it, right? This little story, because it is really all about authority, has some very, very important truths for us to get our minds around. 
And the first is this. People have been trying to pit Jesus against Scripture since the very beginning, since the days that he was walking on the earth. The Sadducees were hoping to have clearance to reject Jesus by getting him to reject the authority of Scripture. People are still trying to pit Jesus against Scripture, aren't they? Today, it's more the opposite. There are an increasing number of Christians and churches that are hoping to gain clearance to reject Scripture by getting Jesus to reject Scripture. The stakes are a little bit different, but the game is the same. They want to hear him say to the Sadducees in this passage, yeah, Moses was really off his rocker on this point. You guys are right. This was written thousands of years ago. We don't really have to deal with it, right? But that's not what he does. Instead, he shows them as he does every single time that someone tries to pit him against Scripture, that they don't actually know the Scriptures that they claim as their final authority. They haven't actually studied them out. If they'd really studied Moses, they'd know that Moses teaches that the dead are raised, he says. Because Moses refers to Yahweh as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, men that had been dead and buried for years. You're not reading closely enough, he says. So truth number one, don't try to pit Jesus against Scripture. Don't try to explain away parts of the book to the guy that wrote it. It's not going to work. He is the true and definitive Word of God, and when we see him use Scripture, he does so in a way that elevates its authority. He says, I have not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. We should sit up and realize that Scripture has authority because Christ has authority. And when he goes to make a point using Scripture, he doesn't skirt around Scripture, right? He sits with it. A second truth for us that's related to the first is to beware people who like to use Scripture in the same way as the Sadducees. This has been happening since then, and it's going on all the way down to today picking out a few verses here and there while ignoring the rest. This is what's called the drunkard's use of a lamppost. Have you guys heard this before? A drunk uses a lamppost for support, right? Not illumination. That's not what the lamppost is there for. The scriptures are not there to reinforce whatever ideas or ideals we may have in our brain. They're not there to make us feel comfortable culturally. They are there to illumine. They are there to bring light to the chaos of our own minds and hearts and to illumine the pathway of life that we might walk in it. Truth number two, don't use Scripture to prop up your pet theologies. Instead, let Scripture be a light to your path and a lamp to your feet. Study it. Meditate on it. As the Anglican divine said, digest it inwardly, and above all, let it study you. Let it study you. Conform your life to it. And finally, what I want us to see from this short story this evening is that the way that Jesus handles Scripture here reveals to us why it is so important that we be both apostolic people and eschatological people. Do you know how the New Testament scriptures were canonized? The church got together by way of the bishops 
And through much prayer and discussion and study over time, they came to the conclusion that the Spirit of God was sort of standing these books apart from all of the rest. That these books should become the scriptures, the authority of the church. And what's interesting is that as you, as you look back now, the most striking thing between the books that they chose and the books that they rejected is that the books that they chose, the books of our New Testament, are saturated to the core with Hebrew scripture. The books that they rejected, by and large, seem as if they sort of came out of nowhere. They're not really connected to the tradition, to what's come before. They may have good things to say, but they are not part of this authoritative thing, the church said. The bishops of the church saw themselves in the line of the apostles, which means that they couldn't simply do whatever seemed okay to them, whatever seemed permissible to them. They were men under the authority of what had been handed down to them, just like Paul's writing in the Thessal- to the Thessalonians. At that time, as they were trying to figure out the New Testament canon as the Spirit directed them, there were people then, and from then until now to this very day, there are people that say, well, the Spirit is revealing something new. And you know what our response should be? Maybe. Maybe he is. The Spirit is alive, after all. He blows where he wills. And then, after we say maybe, we should check the claim against Scripture and the consensus of the church. Even in the Reformation, the early Reformers were simply responding to medieval malformed Christianity by going back to the church fathers and seeing what was truly Catholic, believed everywhere, always, and by all. That's what they were doing. To be apostolic is to recognize that, generally speaking, things don't just appear without a lineage. We believe that God has worked in saints' past through their courage in the face of persecution to preserve the message of the gospel and the life of the church down to this very day. And you know what that means? It means that we don't get to just decide to do things apart from that heritage, apart from that apostolic authority of those who have gone on before. Not only that, but Jesus himself doesn't do that. If you want to follow Christ, you have to follow him in being with Scripture, not rejecting it. But this encounter doesn't just show us about the importance of being apostolic people. It shows us the importance of being eschatological people, and I'll end with this. In dealing with the Sadducees here, Jesus is reading Scripture very eschatologically. He is looking to the end. And he tells the Sadducees that there are people who are marked primarily by this age, and there are people who are marked primarily by that age, by the age to come. And the people of the age to come are said to be worthy to attain to it. They're described as being like angels and are called children of God and children of the resurrection. The the literal translation is sons, and that's not meant to be pejorative or, or misogynistic. That is accompanying sons and daughters, but what it means is that you're an inheritor. You're an heir. Not like the surrounding culture where daughters just had to get married off into some other family. No, 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 no. If you're a follower of Christ and you're his daughter, you are an heir. You have this inheritance. You have resurrection. We talked about this on Wednesday night as we observed the Feast of All Souls. That phrase that Christ uses 
with the Sadducees, to be worthy to attain to the age to come. What does that mean? How could one be worthy to attain to the age to come? What we find through the rest of the Gospels and the letters of Paul is that to be found worthy to attain to the age to come is to be found in Christ, plain and simple. It is to be dressed in his righteousness, to have been washed in his blood. It is through faith and baptism, the sealing of the Holy Spirit, to put on Christ's death and resurrection. Don't rush past It is to put on Christ's death that we might attain the resurrection from the dead. That is how you are made worthy to attain the resurrection, is putting on his death. It is a work of the Spirit, yes, but it's one that requires submission to Christ and death to self. To be in Christ, to share in the communion of the saints, is to be sharing in his sufferings, in his death. And so the question to ask is, are you? Are you sharing in those things? Are you spending the days that you have in this life in selfishness or in service? Is your heart roused more by the cheers of the stadium or the singing of God's people? Have you taught yourself to long more for the new brunch spot or a new cocktail bar than you do for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Following Jesus is not easy. And if you allow your mind and heart to set their hopes on things that are all here and now, it may eventually seem far too difficult to keep following Christ. But when you realize what's on offer, when you realize the gift of the inheritance to those that are in Christ, when you understand that the true God is the God of the living, that resurrection life is to be had, that a never-ending wedding feast in the presence of the most single, worthy being in existence, Christ the Lamb, is what you're being invited to. That's what it is. When that eschatological edge becomes the frame of your story, and then you fill in that story with the good news that even when you were living in a broken-off, dead-end rebellion against God, his love for you was so strong that Christ, that lamb, came and died on your behalf. If that's the story that you live by and you frame it in such a way that you know that you will share in his resurrection, well, Following Jesus into suffering and death in this world would become the most natural thing to do, wouldn't it? Friends, if you're tired or if you feel your faith dwindling, do not give up hope. If you are in Christ, you have been called to a glorious inheritance. And not only that, he has given us food and drink for the way. In a moment, come and refresh your souls with Christ the Lamb.